Jesus continues to really uh, challenge the disciples in terms of how they look at things. Uh, that's one of the things you see so much in Jesus is that, you know, the way he looked at so many things, you know, is just quite different than the normal way people look. So in the first section in chapter 19, he really changed the way people look at love and marriage and things like that. Now, uh, somebody want to read 13 to 15. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. Okay, so some children are being brought to Jesus, I'm guessing by their parents, and so that he would be able to pray for them and bless them in some way. And what's the disciples' attitude toward this? Children are not important. Exactly. They tried to shoo them away as sort of a nuisance, you know, because children aren't important. That's exactly right. Jesus did not see it that way. Jesus really challenged our view of status and what's important. He said, let the children come, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Such as these what? Yeah, people without status, people without importance. You know, people that everybody else looks down on and tries to just, uh, you know, get rid of. Those are the kind of people that make up Jesus' kingdom. You know, and so Jesus was laying his hands on the children. He always paid attention to the children. You know, what are the children going to be able to do for Jesus? You know, they're kids. But Jesus cares about the people who can't do anything for him. So he really changes how we look at status and importance. And uh, Jesus gave attention to the people who had nothing to give back. Thoughts and comments? Alright, uh, 16 to 26. <coughs> Behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man had heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was the one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking upon... Uh, upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Well, there's this guy who comes to Jesus. Do you see anything good in this guy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything. Yeah, like what? In 
like at the human point of view, he's perfect almost. Yeah, he he done everything the commandments said. What else was good about it? He was looking for eternal life. Yeah, he was wanting eternal life. He and a lot of people don't really care about things like that, but he was seeking that. What else was good about it? Came to Jesus. Yeah. He recognized that Jesus was the one who could tell him about how to get to heaven. What else is good about it? He's humble, I guess. How do you know he's humble? Well, having all this, he's still willing to, for correction, or... Yes. He still said, what do I lack? He still knew there was something else missing. For us, a lot of times, if we were as good as this man was, we would not think there could be any possibility we still lacked something. So that speaks well of him. Um, so, so there's a lot of good in this young man. You know, we're impressed by him. Now, Jesus says several things to him. Jesus asked him to think about the idea of good. He said, what good thing shall I do? And Jesus said, why are you asking about what's good? The only really good thing is God and his will. That's the, that's the definition of good right there. It's what combines what fits the Lord. And then, as Jesus often does, Jesus points him to the, to the commandments. If you want to do what's right, keep the commandments. <clears throat> well, what, he said, which ones? Well, what commandments did Jesus have in mind? Yeah, the Ten Commandments, the commandments in the law. Those are the commands that Jesus had in mind. And so he says, there's what you need to do, keep those commandments. And, well, um, he says, I've done that. What do I still like? Well, what did Jesus tell him? Go, sell, give, come, follow. He gives him a series of five commands. And, uh, well, how does this young man take that uh, formula? Not so good. Yeah, what does he do? Why was he grieving? It's going to be more expensive than he thought. So why is he grieving? He's not willing to pay it. Yes. Some people would say, well, he was grieving because he, he didn't want to give up all his riches. Well, he wasn't going to. That, he, was, he was too attached to them. He was grieving because he wasn't going to get to follow Jesus. Because <laughs> he wasn't going to give him up. And so this means he doesn't get eternal life. You know, he wasn't grieved because he had to give up his riches. He was grieved because he wasn't going to get eternal life since he was really attached to his riches. So why did Jesus tell him to do that? That's what he liked. Well, have you sold everything you have? No. So is that what you lack? 
maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so why did Jesus tell him this is what he lacked? Because Jesus knew what he wouldn't give up. So what is it that we lack? The willingness to serve. Yes. To, to give up whatever is in front of Jesus. That's exactly right. I think that is the point. Whatever is more important than God is in our life, we must get rid of. Whatever it is. For some people, it's their money. And they've got to give it up. For some people, it may be something else. Maybe something that's not even wrong in itself, but it's wrong for them because they give it more importance than they do God. Whatever that is, we've got to give it up. Was Jesus right about what the man needed? Obviously, because he was not willing to do it. So that means that Jesus got it right. When he had to choose between his money and Jesus, guess who won? It wasn't Jesus. <laughs> so, uh, Jesus, Jesus did know exactly what he needed. Um, it's interesting that Jesus did not water down the requirements to gain an influential disciple like this rich young ruler. You know, this guy could have meant a lot to Jesus, but Jesus is not going to uh, shortcut the procedure. He's got something in his life that means more to him than what the Lord does. He's got to give that up. You cannot serve God if there's something else that matters more. Had this guy actually kept the commandments? No. I say he didn't. What commandments had he broken? Uh, love your God with all, all your heart, all your might. And yeah, thou shalt not have any other gods before me, is the way it says it in the Ten Commandments. He had a God before God. Yeah. That was his riches. I think there's another one of the Ten Commandments he broke. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not exactly one of the ten. Covet. Covet, yes. The last one, thou shalt not covet. He was greedy. He had too great an affection for, for things. And so in a sense, that, that greediness or covetousness was, was breaking that. Um, so, Jesus misses out on a potential follower. It's kind of ironic that Jesus welcomes the little children who have nothing to offer, and he turns away a great man like this rich ruler because he wasn't willing to give up what he did have. Comments through 22 or questions. I think it's because like he tried to sh he tried to t uh, show the world that that the the the, yeah, the kingdom that the Jesus was talking about was nothing to do with art. Uh, it is he he also preached that later on w w were they in the beginning or later on that he said even John who like the John was uh, he was great he was baptizing a lot of people. And Jesus said, even the smallest one in, in, in the kingdom is greater than John. So he's saying that you know, in order for, I think to me as I look at it is that you try to point that out that we can't, nothing in this world that nothing in this world uh, can measure to, 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 to the kingdom that right. he was, was going to give to these people. That's exactly right. People just don't know what they're missing 
when they give up on the kingdom in favor of something here, whatever it is, anything that it is. You know, because it's worthless compared to what Jesus is offering. Well, Jesus takes advantage of this opportunity to teach a lesson, starting in verse 23, what does Jesus warn about? Yeah, it's so hard for a rich man to go to heaven. Harder than what? Yeah, uh, how would that work? Any of you tried to thread a needle before? Yes. With a camel? <laughs> no. That would be a really complicated procedure, it seems to me. Well, I start with this little tufty tail, and like, <laughs> you can get one strand through there. Yeah. You pull really hard. <laughs> and I'm like, get his cells to come out. Yeah. And unravel his DNA. Can you imagine the camel and one long ribbon from tail to snout, you know? Uh, that, that's kind of a funny illustration. Jesus picks the biggest animal in Palestine in the smallest opening to say, it's really hard for a rich man to go to heaven. Now that is really quite a challenge to the disciples because they would have thought that's an advantage. If anybody ought to go to heaven, it'd be a rich man. So when Jesus says that, they say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus was not actually trying to say that it is absolutely impossible for a rich person to go to heaven, but it's very unlikely. Because it is so common for us who are rich to get too focused on this life, to put too high a value on our riches, to be too self-satisfied. There's just a bunch of bad things that comes with being wealthy. And so it's really rare for a rich person to go to heaven. Yes? Um, there's another way to view verse 24. I don't really like it as much, but I want to see what you have a feel about it. Um, because they used the the um, culture of the Jews back then, and that, or the people back then, and the night eye of a needle was a term for this fence where there's this two fence things and one there, so people could walk through it, but animals and stuff couldn't get through it. I don't really like that because it kind of just diminishes the view here. But what do you think about using that? Term? Well, I think in the Middle Ages, when that explanation was invented, it was a way of trying to evade what Jesus was really saying. There's no evidence that there was anything actually like that in Palestine in Jesus' day. But, but in the Middle Ages, some, some people came up with that as an explanation. Maybe they were just, you know, struggling with the, uh, you know, way Jesus said that or whatever. But I don't think there's any evidence at all that it really existed. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And that is a common explanation, though. People will do a lot of stuff, and a lot of times people don't know any better. You know, you read that somewhere, or you hear it somewhere, and you assume it's true. But, but I, I don't think that it is. I've never, I've, I've seen a number of sources that say that it was an invention of the Middle Ages, and I've never seen anywhere that tried to give any kind of documentation that it really existed. Other thoughts? So what is he saying is possible in, with God over 26? Well, I think that a rich man could go to heaven, among other things. 
He's not saying so it's your impossible. Your response to their question, who can be saved, like it's possible for people to be saved. And yeah, saved. well, you know, it's possible for people to be saved. It's possible for a rich man to be saved. God can do a lot of things. But he is saying it is really hard for a rich man to go to heaven. It just, it's so natural the more we have to make these possessions mean too much. If you didn't have hardly anything, how hard would it be to give it up? You know? I mean, theoretically, the less you have, the less challenge there would be to giving it up. Um, there's a... Uh, in, in Matthew, in, in Mark, the chapter that talks about this story also tells about a blind beggar that came to Jesus. Well, it says that when he got up to come to Jesus, he threw his cap, his like his coat off. Probably the only thing he owned. And he came to Jesus. Was it as hard for the blind beggar to give up his cape as it would have been for the rich man to give up his riches? Well, no. The blind beggar didn't have anything. If you don't have much to give up, then it's really easier to give it up because you're not giving up very much. But the more you've got invested in this life, the harder it is to relinquish it and to say, I don't really care about this. I only care about serving God. Other thoughts? Why? How do you explain um, at the beginning when it's just kind of different, though, in a different place it says he calls him good teacher, and then he explains on that. And this is like a different reading. Yeah, well, you know, when you have like direct speech reported in the Gospels, we are not really, I don't think, supposed to understand that they recorded every single word that was spoken. Right. You know, if, if, if somebody was, uh, if a news reporter was reporting on some, you know, event, some news conference or something like that, they say, well, the player today, you know, Mr. X, that's the great basketball star, said this. Well, that's not all he said. He said a lot more stuff. Maybe it summarizes or maybe it's one snatch out of what he said or whatever. I'm assuming there was more said in this conversation than what any one gospel gives. He may have come up and said, good teacher, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Either way, Jesus is challenging how how lightly he's using the term good. You know, what he really needs to think about is there's only one good thing. That's God. You know, and God's will. And all this other stuff that he, you know, people always today are talking about, well, I'm a good person. You know, I think I'm, I'm a good person. Well, the only good there is is God. Yeah. What about the idea of him telling me Jesus telling him to follow the old law. Does that seem consistent with some of the other teaching where he's almost, um, I don't know, uh, being, you know, adding specifics to it or adding. Expounding. Yeah. In, in a sense, maybe we've always viewed it as Jesus came along and gave us a new law. Yet here he's telling him to follow the old law. 
Well, maybe you've got more than one thing to say about that. I mean, obviously, for one thing, the law he's really under right then was still the Old Testament. Jesus lived under the law. He taught the new covenant, but really everybody was still under the old covenant. But, for that matter, the things he quotes are, are the things that you know are in the law today as well. He quotes that one thing that's out of the, the Ten Commandments, you shall love your neighbors yourself, and then the other ones that are from the Ten Commandments. And, you know, all those are still applicable today because they're in the New Covenant. So, I mean, maybe from that standpoint, he's really encompassing both. Would did he also be that uh, already know that he's the guy going to come and ask that question, and then he can rejected it? Because... Well, he chose the the kids. Apparently, all the story go along uh, the uh, go along each other. Well, they're like the the kids that he chose the kids, and uh, nobody stopped the, you know these kind of kids. Well, and then now you got like he was in, you got the the rich guy, and then the, uh, Jesus said he asked the question that he that it's kind of like a, an already made up story. You, you, you know what I'm trying to get at? Do you understand? No, I didn't, I didn't follow that. Okay, so would it be like Jesus already know that he's going to ask that question and he, are, he already know that he will ask this question and he won't be able to follow it. He won't be able to do it. So the, the whole thing that asking question and then, you know, all this was just... Right. Okay, I think I understand what you're saying. In other words, Jesus really knew that he had not kept the commandments. And Jesus knew that he was going to challenge him to give up everything he sold. This is kind of the first step. The first step is to point him to the law. Have you kept the commandments? Well, yeah, I've kept them from my youth. Well, then Jesus points out, but here's something else you need to do. And, and really, Jesus knew that he wouldn't do that, and that proved he was breaking some of the Ten Commandments. It seems like the earlier example about the remarriage question seems like a new teaching other than just the old law. Yes. Jesus taught many things that go beyond the old law. Sermon on the Mount, for example, and a variety of things. So Jesus taught a lot of things about the new covenant but when he gave people specific things to do, he always told them to keep the old covenant, even like telling the lepers to go and offer the sacrifice for their cleansing and things like that. But Jesus, you know, it's like if, if you make out a will, when does the will go into effect? When you die. When you die. When do you make it out? Hopefully before. Yeah, it's, it's more effective if you make it out before you die. Yes. Uh, Jesus was teaching the will, the testament, before it came into effect at his death. So Jesus preached the gospel, the kingdom, but when he gave specific instructions to people, he, he framed it in terms of the law. So I'll bring up one of my pet peeves here, since we've recently heard some <laughs> lessons about it, the way that we arrive at authority from the scripture either by direct command or example or necessary inference. 
And I would look at these and say, look back at the teaching on divorce, and Jesus said, and I say to you this, and then he looks over here in verse 21, he tells this guy, I say to you, if you wish to be complete, do this. And yet we do not view those the same way. We do not say, well, those are both commands, so we need to go sell all that we have and, and give it to the poor. I think that would be an exception to any one of those rules of, of finding authority, which comes back to what exactly is Jesus trying to teach us from these passages and not using a set of rules to try to check it off and well it, it must be a rule because Jesus commanded it or, or vice versa. Yes, certainly. What our goal is to know and understand the will of God. Our goal is to understand what Jesus meant, what he was really saying. You know, when we say that you have to obey what God says, there actually have to be some qualifications even on that statement. God said to build an ark. <laughs> but we don't mean we should build an ark. So we would have to qualify that by saying, you know, we should obey what God says to us. And, you know, probably be a variety of other qualifications that we'd come up with, you know, as we're trying to just understand what the Lord's saying. So this is not a matter of just imposing some external rules. We're actually trying to understand what the scriptures are saying and what they mean for us to do. And to do that, we're going to have to study, and it tests our heart. Sometimes we like to simplify things. But sometimes the simplifying ends up creating more difficulty than what it helps. Sometimes not. But it's where, you know, simplified or not, there's just no substitute for going through the Bible a step at a time and just seeing what's there in the context, trying to understand what is the Lord really telling us. So people who come up with some formulas on how to understand Bible authority, generally speaking, I more or less agree with where they end up. But it's not the way I think of that. To me, some of that is a bit contrived. And some of it is a bit, you've got to qualify it a whole lot before you're going to take it anyway. Well, and it could be dangerous if I just said to you, go to the Bible and you look for direct commands, examples, or necessary conclusions and that's what you follow. Yes. Okay, now I go and read this. I look at verse 21, sell all you have and give to the poor. I look at verse 24, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. I take one of those and not the other. That doesn't fit with my rules that I just... Well, and some things are a matter of teaching, too. I mean, in those three things, what if it's not a command exactly, but it's something that's being taught in the passage? I mean, you know, we can think of how God communicates in various ways, and all of those things may be helpful things to think about. You know, it's certainly true that God gives us commands that we need to follow. And it is definitely true that there are examples in the Bible that God gives that we ought to follow. Paul said over and over again, follow my life, follow my example. And we see God teaching by example. And certainly we understand we have to make some logical deductions based upon what we're reading to understand what it's saying. But I think what we really want is 
I want to have some sort of God-given approval before I act. He might give that approval in various ways, but I can't just go off here and say, well, I think God would like this. That's what I'm going to do. We try to just follow exactly what God says, and, and we want to please him so much that if he's not given us some indication that it's what he wants us to do, we're not just going to assume he'd like it just because, you know, we like it. And one of the things that I hear people doing sometimes that's not accurate is they say, well, well, give me an example of that. Well, maybe somebody can, but there's a lot of things we may do that we don't have an example of. We still have Bible teaching that shows us that it's what we should do. So I will say, well, show me that God approves of this in some way, not just give me an example of it. But sometimes we shortcut things more than we ought to. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? So if our command is not to sell everything we have, then what do we do about this problem? About this problem? Of being rich. Well, um, there are some Bible instructions specifically to rich people. I think First Timothy 6 is really helpful. I mean, think about some of the dangers of riches. And First Timothy 6 really deals with these. In verse 17, he specifically says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world. <laughs> so here's the lesson. Not to be conceited. Now, that's one thing. Riches tend to make us prideful. And if we've got very much money or stuff, we've got to really not let it go to our head. And then, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. We can't trust in riches. We can't feel secure. We can't, you know, feel like we are not vulnerable. We've got to see that it's God who's giving us the riches and he's our only security. Everything else in life can be gone just like that. So can our very life. And instruct them in verse 18 to be good, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. You know, there's some, uh, I think it's worrisome when you see Christians who have kind of this hoarding mentality. You know, we want more and more and more and more and more and more and more. Or you see Christians that have this self-indulgent mentality. Oh, I want this, I want this, I want this, let me have that, and I want to go there, I don't want to do that. You know, because so often you see us developing a self-focus. And what he says to those who are rich we need to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He says in 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You know, what if you thought about it this way? I just preached on this Sunday, so <laughs> I'm going through 2 Corinthians 8. Um, so I'm glad you asked. Um, but um, you, you think about the fact that if, if I come by my wealth legitimately at any rate, then it's God that gives it to me. So that makes me a steward. God entrusted me with possessions and wealth, but they're really his. 
So what does he expect from that? Why did God give me the riches he gave me? Did he give them to me so that I can have a, you know, 10-figure bank account? Did he give them to me so that I could just do everything I want to and have every toy I want to have? Well, I think what the Bible would say is he gave, gave them to me so that I could use them generously in helping others and helping the spread of the gospel. Uh, St. Corinthians 8 talks about God wanted equality, that the present time your abundance is a supply for their lack, that in the future their abundance can be a supply for your lack, that there would be equality. God really wanted, for example, there's more to it than just this, but God wanted in that passage all Christians to have their needs supplied. Well, was God not God enough to just give the money to every Christian that they needed to supply their needs? Why did he make it to where some Christians had an abundance and some Christians had a lack? You think, if God really wanted them all to be taken care of, then God could have fixed that very easily. Well, it looks to me like that passage is saying that God did it differently. That God is supplying the needs of the brethren who have a lack by giving an abundance to other brethren. What that means is then some have the blessing of giving and some have the blessing of receiving. And evidently the Lord thought that was a better way of achieving the equity that he wants among brethren. So really, if I'm rich, I need to see these things as being God's gifts for me to use for him, not as God rewarding me so that I can be, you know, just, uh, you know, living in a lap of luxury or whatever. That's what I would say. I do think we have to think about this more than sometimes we do. I think we've tended to almost too quickly say, but it's fine to be rich. Well, it is in one sense. If we're doing with our riches what God wants, that could even be a real blessing. You know, that God may be wanting to use me in those ways. But just to kind of glibly say it's fine to be rich and it's okay just to hang on to it and hoard it and use it self-indulgently, maybe not so much. Good question. Thank you for letting me preach my sermon. Mm-hmm. Got the whole thing, didn't we? Yeah, I pretty know. close, pretty close. All right, other comments? That'll teach you not to ask questions. <laughs> Especially when I just preached about it. All right, 27 to 30. And Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be left for us? And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that you have followed me in the regeneration and the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and, and, and will inherit their eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Well, leave it to Peter, right? Uh, I think this is like the uh, however manyth uh, chapter in a row that Peter had something specific to say, like the fifth maybe or sixth, I don't know. Uh, in this case, what's Peter's question? He's 
kind of building on what Jesus just said to the other guy, I guess, and saying, we've given up all kinds of stuff, so what does that mean for us? Yes. What will we get? Now, it's kind of uh, easy to laugh at Peter's question, you know, because it seems like he's awfully interested in knowing what he's going to get paid for this, you know. But on the other hand, have we left what Peter left? You know, what did he mean that he left everything? His job. His job. You know, I mean, his, maybe his family or some family members, his lifestyle, his home. You know, he was just wandering with Jesus who didn't have a place to lay his head. He really had given up everything. You know, so that's, uh, I mean, I think, you know, he looks at the rich ruler and, well, he went away sad, but, but Peter had done that. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, what's he saying by that? Well, the fact that he speaks of twelve thrones reminds us of what? Yeah, it looks to me like the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, and that he is saying that these apostles who've left everything are going to share with Jesus in his rule. After all, what happens on a throne? Who sits on a throne? The king. The king. So they're going to share with Jesus in his kingship. Now, how did they do that? Well, we submit today to the teachings of the apostles. What the apostles revealed judges the world even now. They are sharing with Jesus. He may mean more than that, but it seems to me that he at least means that. There is a great role for the apostles in what Jesus is going to give them. And then Jesus said, everyone who's left all these things for my name's sake will get what back? Hundredfold. Yeah, many times as much. They're going to get a whole lot more back than what they gave, and they'll inherit eternal life. So, you know, Jesus is going to repay us in many ways in this life, but the greater thing is an eternal life. Uh, but, but then he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And he's going to launch out into a parable that's going to explain that and is going to deal a little bit more with some of the attitude flaws in what Peter asked. What's Peter going to get? Jesus says, but then he kind of deals with the spirit behind Peter's question. That's where we're going. Comments and thoughts on 19. This probably really confused the apostles. Well, that would not be anything new. I was going to mention that the last time. Look at their response. It's always, they were amazed. And, <laughs> Man, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. And then 25, they were amazed, astonished. Well, who could be saved? Well, I was just thinking the whole thing about judging the tribes and everything. Like it, You could easily interpret that as the earthly... Mm -hmm whatever. Yeah. Well, they are always amazed and they're usually confused. 
You know, you can tell that sometimes by the questions they ask and the comments they make. You know, Peter has a knack of getting on the wrong side of nearly everything he says anything about. You appreciate his sincerity and his enthusiasm, but uh, he doesn't completely get it yet. This is a process. You know, Jesus is taking these apostles and molding and shaping them. It is encouraging to know that Jesus was willing to work with them and bring them along over a period of time. We might have just gotten frustrated and given it up. But Jesus kept working with them and kept teaching them and developed them into the men that they became. Other comments? What's the regeneration? Why does it use that word? Well, I mean, this is the giving of new life to God's people, to God's kingdom. Um, you know, Amos 9 talks about to raising up the tent of David that had fallen down. Isaiah 11 talks about the new sprout that springs up from the the dead tree of, of God's people, etc. This is just another way of saying when God renews uh, his people through Christ. Oh, so it's not the end of the world. No, I think it's now. Okay. I think maybe in a sense it includes the end of the world, but I think the apostles are legislating for God's people today as well. See, I'm confused too. <laughs> but it, but it's also, I mean, he's referring to that time period re regardless of regardless of when they will be sitting on the throne. He says that you who have followed me in the regeneration mm. will then sit on thrones at another point. It could be during that. It could be at a later point. It now, doesn't have to be. My comma is different. I have, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So I think he's saying that when they judge is in the regeneration. Okay. Yeah. Now that is a little confusing and it may There's be no subject... There's no punctuation in the original. There's no punctuation in the original. So... But my the well, translators in the American Standard regeneration then being described as when the Son of Man will sit upon His glorious throne. If you look at it right a different way, yeah, it depends on how you where where you put the uh, punctuation as you read it. But I think he's saying that the apostles share with Jesus in His rule now. I mean, look at passages like Ephesians two twenty. We are God's family built on the cornerstone being Jesus and the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation. Their word governs what we do and judges what we do. And so I see through the apostles and prophets, Jesus reigns and rules over us now. So that's what I see. It's my take. Well, you want to try something uh, maybe equally challenging, but in a different way. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. But the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to 